The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Maybe you could kind of shift somewhere. I hate to be looking through this. Only only one of you needs to move, so. (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) There are so few of us, it's hard to, it's it's silly to get lined up, so. Um, So thank you for coming. Um, Tonight, what I want to talk about is presence. How do we develop presence? What is presence? And particularly presence that arises out of letting go. Letting go. So I want to talk about mindfulness and letting go. Now, a couple of you heard this quote recently, and for that I apologize, but I was on retreat uh, a couple of weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, and I was commenting to a friend of mine how really delicious the silence and the stillness was at the end of that retreat. It had been kind of a rocky retreat for me. I cried the first three days. <laughs> Massive release. And then there was this beautiful stillness. And it was the stillness that allowed me to really see things without all the distractions of everyday life, to notice exactly what the mind was doing. And it was so freeing and so uh, rewarding and so sweet. And I said, oh, I need to find a way of incorporating that in my life that stillness. So my friend, who was listening to all of this, has sent me a quote that she thought was relevant. And this is a quote from Rachel Remen. Um, Perhaps the most important thing we bring to another person is the silence in us. Not the sort of silence that is filled with unspoken criticism or withdrawal, The sort of silence that is a place of refuge, of rest, of acceptance of someone as they are. We are all hungry for this other silence. It is hard to find. In its presence, we can remember something beyond the moment, a strength on which to build a life. Silence is a place of great power and healing. I loved this quote. And it's been working its way through my thoughts for days and days. And there, there are many threads here in this, in this quote. Inherent to silence is the idea that there's nothing filling the space. It's not cluttered. There's not a lot of stuff there. We're not in the way. And we're very present in the moment. In order to recognize the silence, experience the silence, we have to really be there for it. There's the idea of bringing the silence to someone else. That somehow being aware of the silence in ourselves 
gives us a space where someone else can also experience something as a consequence of that. What's that? What is that? What is that? What is the ability to be present for someone else? How do we get that? What does it mean to be present for someone else besides just being in the room with them? And the idea of sharing a refuge, that's, that's really interesting also. That if I can experience this refuge, I can share it with someone. The capacity to develop the silence, a place of refuge, rest, and acceptance. Well, first of all, I have to develop that in me before I can offer it to someone else. I have to be really clear about that. And how does, how does silence actually relate to stillness? What is silence anyway? What's this silence that we can offer, this emptiness? And how about, how about being alert in the middle of this? I can't say I'm present if I'm not alert. How do I do that? How do we cultivate the capacity to be present for someone truly there in the space? To answer these questions and explore the idea, I want to talk about two very Buddhist but not particularly religious ideas having to do with mindfulness and letting go, awareness and allowing. So those of us who've been speaking about mindfulness for a long time find ourselves using the same words over and over again. And after a while, they, they get kind of dull. You know, they, they lose their sharpness, and they somehow just don't seem to mean anything. In particular, I've had trouble with the whole, every time somebody says, let go, I just kind of turn my ears off and say, okay, yeah, 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 of course, I know, we're going to let go. So the idea of exploring what it means to let go is, is kind of interesting. What's, what is that? We kind of lose the subtlety of context and meaning in these words. So part of what happens in silence and stillness is we stop. So what I've been doing is stopping and saying, oh, what, what is this? The quote in silence has caused me to sit and think about what it means to be present in a place of rest. Present in a place of rest. It's not like uh, zoning out. That, that doesn't count. To actually be present for resting. A place in which there is no need for anything further. For, for just that moment, nothing else is required. Just, just this. It's like the null space between an in-breath and an out-breath, where nothing is happening. You know, when we follow our breath, we'll, we'll talk about following the in-breath and the out-breath and then the next breath and then the next breath. But really, the, the really interesting place is that null space where one changes into the other, where nothing is happening. Being present for that where nothing is happening is like being present with silence. Sometimes it's not actually very comfortable <laughs> when nothing is happening. 
And, and in fact, a lot of people find when they, their mind goes off in meditation, is just about the time between the in-breath and the out-breath, or between the out-breath and the next in-breath, when nothing is happening and the mind flies away. So mindfulness has two aspects. One is the object that we're paying attention to. So to see, we have to look somewhere. The other is the awareness that we're actually looking somewhere. That is, we have to deliberately look at something. So when we drove here, all of us drove here tonight, or walked here, or arrived here, we obviously got here somehow. But how much of that trip do you actually remember? How much of that trip did you register? How much of that trip can you say with certainty that you were present for it? Clearly you saw, or you wouldn't have gotten here. You have to be able to see to walk, to drive. You have to see to hold your hands on the steering wheel. So you were clearly seeing. But the awareness part, when were you aware, I'm driving to this place? I'm now stopping at this stoplight. I'm now changing lanes. It's the awareness part that brings us solidly into the moment. And it's the part that we kind of skip over. You know? And that, that's really where mindfulness has, has its place. We have to observe and investigate the object. We have to really notice the object. You know? I know my hands are on my thighs, but I don't particularly think about it very much because we can't think about everything. We can't watch everything. We can't be aware of everything. So part of it has to do with what are we looking at? Where are we putting our attention? And are we paying attention to our attention? So it turns out what's important is the precision of the mindfulness. Precision. So not the idea about it, not I'm driving, but my hands on the wheel, my foot on the accelerator, my eyes looking at the road, where the, the specifics of mindfulness are where the ability to be here arises from. To see clearly the experience free of the trappings of interpretation. So we can see and not actually see. That's how we got here tonight. Part of the time we really saw and part of the time we didn't. We, we also need to make, take care not to be fooled by what we know. So, so I can pick this up. And we all know this is a bell. And I can ring the bell. Ooh. A nice bell has a great sound. I may be so attached to the fact that this is a bell that I actually am not aware of the fact that it's a bowl. Because I know it's a bell. I can't even think of it as a bowl. It's sacrilegious to think of it as a bowl. But it is, in fact, a bowl. So sometimes we get so attached to what we know about something that we can't see it. 
We don't really experience our own experience because we know so much about it. I know that you have a frown and therefore I know you're unhappy about something I just said. Or you actually had a gas pain which you prefer not to tell me about and it has nothing to do with me at all. But I see the frown, and I'm seeing the frown, I'm present for the frown, and totally misinterpreting it. Totally missing that it's really not about me. So this is another characteristic of mindfulness that we need to be very careful about, which is that we very often impose our own ideas, our own views, our own needs, our own interpretations on the raw experience of this moment. That's where precision becomes important. Oh, what's actually happening now? What's, what do I know is happening now? And how do I know it? It's coming in through some sense. Some, my hearing, my eyes, I'm tasting it. Now, one of the things that makes ice cream wonderful is that full, fat mouth feel. Lemon tends to make your tissues kind of shrivel up. It's sort of astringent. It sucks down. Fat is full. These are, these are feelings, and we associate things with these physical realities of taste and touch. The physical things that we take in, we interpret to mean something. Oh, fat is good. Lemon is not so good. I personally love lemon ice cream, so I can cover both bases. Many misunderstandings arise out of interpreting what we see. Interpreting what you just said. Interpreting what I hear. Interpreting what I see. And getting stuck in what my mind knows about it. As opposed to just this. This is what happened. This is what's happening now. One of the issues is that it's really easy when you're on retreat relatively easy, wouldn't say really easy, but it's relatively easy to see things clearly because you have a, you have a context for things to slow down. Oh, everything's taken care of for you and all you have to do is just sit and walk and sit and walk and sit and walk. And naturally everything gets slow. In this moment right here where we are, how in the room are you? Are you thinking, oh, gee, I kind of, I'd like to be doing, or your mind goes off about something, some word I used, or, gee, I'm really kind of uncomfortable. I wish these chairs were better. There's all kinds of ways that we wander off because we don't have the luxury of time and attention that going on retreat gives us. But we do have the ability to keep practicing and saying, oh, what's going on now? What's going on now? The precision of mindfulness can lead to ever deeper insights. 
We can see more clearly when something is rubbing. We can say, something's rubbing here. Maybe I don't know what it is right now, but there's something rubbing, something uncomfortable. Or we can say, oh, I feel great. I wonder, how do I know I feel great? What's, what am I actually experiencing? I'm interpreting it great. What, what just happened? What was, how did I take in that information that I translated into great? The reason for knowing that is that we get everything through the physical or mental parts of how we meet experience. If we can interpret it correctly, we can see more clearly. If we can be more precise about what we are experiencing, we get more information. We can see what our mind habits are. We can see what our mind normally does. The process of insight involves just this, being aware of the movement of the mind, seeing whether it is skillful or unskillful, and adjusting accordingly. It isn't whether something is good or bad, but just, oh, well, that was an interesting result. I wonder what that's about. The movement is neither good nor bad. Judgment is not a feature. Judgment comes after the feature. Seeing it, though, clearly allows for discernment. I can tell this from that. I don't have to say this is better than that. But I need to be able to see, oh, this is what's true. Oh, this is what's true. It's only on reflection that we can say, oh, I'm going to cultivate this. I'm going to not cultivate that. We can actually see the arising of suffering and the falling away of suffering. But only if we're seeing it clearly. Otherwise, we're just lost. We can see wanting things to be different than they are. Just as simple as that. I just want it to be different. I don't know why. I don't know what. But I just want it to be different. Have you ever been aware of, the, of wanting something and not even sure what you wanted? Just want. It's just, it's, it's just not quite right. So this is a valid thing to notice. Notice the mind saying, this is not right. You don't have to agree with it. But it's important to notice that it's happening. This is not right. Or this is right. How do I know this is right? We see and experience pain and loss, gain and, gain and loss, pain and, and pleasure, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. These are called the eight winds, and I always forget one or the other of them. But <laughs> there are eight of them, common things that we experience all the time. And we think that they're about us, these experiences. And we think we have something to do with them. And they arise and they pass away. And we see how one gives way to the other if we're watching very closely. We discover that we're not the center of anyone's story but our own. This can be quite shocking. We're so familiar with our story. 
with seeing things from our point of view that we're shocked when somebody else doesn't see it. <laughs> By being very careful, we actually show up for our own experience. We can't show up for someone else if we don't show up for our own experience, if we're not there for what's happening. It's central to being able to access the silence and the rest and the assurance of being here. So I have a quote from Gil that I particularly like. I wrote it down some time ago. And he said, learn how to be non-reactive, to have the mind be peaceful without agitation. This could be described as coming to the zero point between negative reactions on one side and positive reactions on the other. It is resting content for a brief time without being for or against anything. It is being mindful, easeful, and peaceful with what is. Conventionally, this may look like accepting what is. So basically, it is not having an opinion on your experience, neither being for it nor against it. This is the experience. This does two things. It helps you see clearly, and it also lands you clearly in this moment because all the interpretation happens at another time, after the experience. So this morning... I was with someone who uh, was challenging for me, challenging. She was um, someone who fiercely refuses to be affected by what anyone thinks. She is just not affected by it. Thank you very much. And she will tell you at great length and with great assertiveness over and over why she does not care what people think about her. Not only does she not care what people think about her? But her mother doesn't think about what people think about her mother either. And it's a long tradition in her family because they are really strong, independent people. Okay. It was, it was actually strange to be with someone who had such a strong sense of detachment. She wore it like a badge of honor, this detachment. Totally unaffected by what people thought. And I flinched. I found myself sitting there feeling really uncomfortable. The longer she went on, I felt myself get defensive. I wanted to fix her. I wanted to change. I wanted to explain how she was misguided. I was certain she was misguided. I noticed my own views. And then I said, hmm, okay. I reminded myself just to show up and not have to fix her and not have an opinion about her. I didn't urge her to be different. I practiced allowing her to be just the way she is. I had to practice it. I had to consciously think, She's, she's okay, just the way she is. I don't have to fix this. I have no responsibility. 
nor do I have to be affected by it. I am, so I notice all of the reactions I'm having. But I decided to just be there with my confusion, with her raging, without rejection. It was really interesting to say, I'm not going to reject this. She really feels this way. And strongly. I offered her silence. Neither agreeing nor disagreeing. In not responding to her, I didn't offer her the pool of reflection. And eventually she just stopped talking. I felt slightly battered. Her, her comments were hitting me. I felt defensive. I also recognized in her a condition that I myself once shared. A past where I once espoused how important it was to be unaffected by what people thought or how they thought or not depending on other people, being independent. I could see there. And so it led me to say, what's different? What's changed? How am I different than them? What am I showing up with now that is different? So I, had a, a, I have three things that I came up with in just reflecting on my reactions to her and recognizing myself in her and also seeing that it is no longer me. So, I, so primarily I have a sense that I am enough. I am enough. This has to do with not having to be perfect. Finally figured out I'm never going to be perfect anyway. So great, I'm enough. I don't have to fix other people either. I don't have to correct other people. I don't have to be right. I don't have to convince someone else of my position. I don't have to hold so tightly to my views that it gets in the way of interacting with someone else. I am enough. I've developed more of a willingness to be vulnerable. I don't always have to defend myself. Sometimes it seems very necessary. But certainly in the conversation this morning, I did not have to defend myself. What stimulated the conversation was my saying, so-and-so commented to me about myself this, and someone else commented the opposite of it. And what I found interesting is that the comments were so opposite. What she found interesting was that anybody bothered to comment. <laughs> so, so we were coming from a totally different place. But I am much more willing to be vulnerable than I was. I'm not, I don't require the boundaries around me to be so solid. And this comes, I think, from the confidence of practice, of seeing how I contribute to my own suffering and unhappiness by what I bring to the moment. 
my defensiveness, my views, my need to be right, my need to have the answer, my need to fix. And the third thing is that I have an intention toward kindness. That makes it harder to be someone who demands to be independent of other people because it breaks down the barriers and it softens my heart to have an intention toward kindness. So there are actually two aspects to presence. One is the showing up, the basic showing up for yourself or for someone else. And the second is the quality of your heart, the quality of the person that shows up, the quality with which you are meeting the moment. And that's related to how you're bringing your attention, attention, what is your intention? Is your heart open? Is it closed? Are you caring, settled, unsettled, agitated? It's a lot harder to be still when you're agitated. They kind of fight one another, those two ways of being. Are we tentative? We try to cultivate an open, non-judgmental awareness. What do those words mean? They mean that we have the willingness to stay with what we meet. Here's what's showing up in me, in you, and I'm willing to just be here for that. Just the raw experience of showing up with whatever we find. We need a compassionate heart. Compassion for ourselves so that when we notice, okay, I'm getting defensive, I'm getting, oh, yes, we've seen that before. Okay, yeah. There's agitation, you're getting agitated. Notice you're being agitated. Do you want to stay there or not stay there? Are you going to keep telling yourself the story that stimulates that agitation? Or are you going to let go of that story? A willingness to stay with just this. Mindfulness can be a really cold and empty practice without a softening of the heart. Just the ability to see something is not enough. We also have to have the ability to compassionately view it. To say, oh actually experience what it's like to have that experience. It's the awareness of part of mindfulness. We see and we let go. We see how are we without, with respect to the other person. Do I like being in the room with you? Do I not like being in the room with you? Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Do I feel on edge? Or do I feel relaxed? What am I bringing here? Notice it and then let it go. We don't have to hold on to it. We just notice what we arrived with. It's changing all the time. Notice the need to fix, to change it, to control it. I'm a big control person. I like to control everything. But, you know, you're all sitting all the way around this room. I can't control you. 
It's just the way it is. Let go of the need to control it. See the desire for it to be a certain way. It would have been lovely for me to convince this woman this morning that all she had to do was let down her defenses and she'd be so much happier because that's my view. How much more of a gift is it to not try to convert her but to simply let her be? To give up the need to fix, to let that need of mine go. To let go of the need of it to be a certain way. To just say, okay, it doesn't have to be a certain way. It's this way. To say, it doesn't have to be perfect. I don't have to be perfect. She doesn't have to be perfect. None of us has to be perfect. And accept that. It's a big thing to accept, actually. Because we're pretty stuck on that, I'm going to be a better person someday problem. Let go of how we think things ought to turn out. How we think, how we think they will turn out. Oh, I know what's going to happen. No, we don't. We actually don't. Let go of spiritual insight. Uh, if we were all mindful, everything would be better. And if I could just make everybody see this. No. <laughs> Wrong. It closes us off to other points of view. It closes us off from seeing what's true, of what's actually in the moment of experience. The most important thing to let go of is me. All the ideas I have about me, who I am, who I think I am, who I want to be, how this whole experience revolves around me. This is the hardest thing to let go of. If I want to show up for you, I have to be not attached to me. I have to know me. I have to be aware of me. I have to be mindful enough to say, this person has entered the room, this person that I'm pointing to, touching my body, in this body has arrived with all of these things. And then I just let them go. I just let them be there. I don't try to do something with them. I don't hold on to these ideas about me. I don't push these ideas away. I just let them be there. The same way I do with you. The Buddha said that the supreme state of sublime peace is liberation through non-clinging. And if you were Joseph Goldstein, you would say, it doesn't matter to, which, to what you do not cling. Anything counts. It doesn't matter to what you don't cling. Just don't cling. Let it be there. And then just let it be there. We're not practicing to have some better experience. We're practicing for our hearts to be free. 
So there are two things that we do. One is to enhance our ability to be mindful. And the other is enhance our ability to be open to what's there. And that means not building barriers around ourselves. It is metta in being. Now we have all kinds of practices. We sit in meditation. We visualize things. We have habits that we practice. We have physical things that we do. We have metta practice. We say equanimity phrases. These are all tools. And not to be confused with what we want, which is just freedom in this moment. They're means to get there. So we practice. And we practice so that we recognize when it shows up. Oh, here, right now, in this moment, I'm not afraid. I don't need to fix anything. There's nothing happening. Now it's busy. But right now, nothing's happening. Oh. We have to learn to recognize those moments. To not have all of our time spent correcting our experience. So we have an intention to be safe, to do no harm to ourselves and others, to be here fully in the moment, to remain with an open, unguarded heart. We don't have to check our brains at the door. We don't have to be foolish. But we have to be willing to be open. See how it feels. See what happens. Open to the experience. The practice of wishing ourselves well and wishing others well sets the conditions for how we meet people in the next moment. If I'm willing to give myself a chance, in the next moment I've given myself a chance to experience whatever is there freshly in a new way. We're not required to love everyone, but we can still wish them well. Doesn't hurt anybody. We can do that. We can train ourselves to be empathetic, to see the other person, to see ourselves in the other person, to be present and non-reactive for just this moment before we choose what we're going to do in response, for just this moment to be non-reactive. It requires us to have some faith in our own capacity to do that. And that faith or confidence arises out of practicing seeing it. However briefly we see it, however briefly we experience a moment of not needing to change what is there. Beautiful. So, uh, so yesterday, there was a plant at the UC Botanical Garden that bloomed. This plant is a Maladora. The plant is about four feet tall. It blooms every 10 or 12 years. And it stinks like a mix of gym socks and rotten steak. 
It stinks. It's called Amaladora. And it blooms for about 24 hours. So it started blooming yesterday. It's blooming today. By tomorrow, it'll be gone. A four-foot flower, it's huge. It stands up four feet. Now, in, in Sumatra, where they're from, they grow to 12 or 20 feet. But in Berkeley, where it's slightly cooler, it'll only go to four feet. Okay. So why am I telling you about this flower? It's behaving, even though it's been displaced, exactly the way its nature requires it. It blooms ever so rarely and briefly, but it blooms because that's the nature of the plant. It's out of the ordinary, but exactly in its nature. It's stunted if you compare it to those in Sumatra, but all by itself, it's quite magnificent. It's a huge blossom. I've seen a picture of it. I haven't actually seen the flower. It comprises, at the same moment, both a very unpleasant smell and a gorgeous flower. Both things are true. They're both held there at the same time. It occurs rarely and disappears quickly. In our practice, we should not be discouraged by the infrequency of when we notice a moment of freedom. The moment that we notice a moment of freedom is a moment of freedom. Let's not miss it. The more that we notice it, the more likely we are to notice it again, to experience it again, to savor it again, and to know that it's gone. It's in the nature of our experiences that they rise and pass away. We can hold both pleasant and unpleasant at the same time. We can hold both agitation and the knowing of that agitation in itself allows us to say, oh, I'm totally here for this. So that it does not control us. We just see it. We show up. We are not dissuaded from our path by measuring ourselves against some standard against other people, about our own idea, about what should be true. We're just here. We show up in all our flawed glory in this moment, and in this moment, and in this moment. We experience the pleasure of non-reactivity, neither being for nor against this moment. So I'm going to return to that quote from Rachel. Perhaps the most important thing we bring to another person is the silence in us, not the sort of silence that is filled with unspoken criticism or hard withdrawal, the sort of silence that is a place of refuge, of rest, of acceptance of someone as they are. We are all hungry for this other silence. It is hard to find. In its presence, we can remember something beyond the moment, a strength on which to build a life. 
Silence is a place of great power and healing. Through mindfulness and a soft heart, we can provide ourselves with this momentary peace of silence. We can do this. Having offered it to ourselves, we can share it in any moment. We don't have to wait for the perfect moment. This is not something that's going to happen tomorrow or in 10 years from now when we get to be better people. We can share it right now. We can let go of all those things that the mind says is not quite right. Just now. Just now I don't need to save the world. Enter the moment of neither for nor against. Let everything else just be. We are in this moment. Thank you all. And thanks to Shelley for sending me this inspirational quote. (laughs) So... Are there any comments, questions? General thoughts of you've got to be kidding. (laughs) I'm sorry, you've got a comment? I've got one of those, one of those general thoughts of you've got to be kidding. Um, Recently, I've interacted with two very close friends who... really spouted a lot of negativity and blame towards other people. And I really didn't hand it, handle it very well. It's with both of them I finally pointed out that you're really bad-mouthing these people. And I don't know that was the wisest thing to do. It's I liked what you said about about the stinky plant. It's like, oh yeah, it's the nature of the stinky plant to be... I have gone and visited this stinky plant and stood in land. I know this plant many years ago, but I met that plant. But that was good. That was like, oh, okay, yeah, it's, it's... But that's not how I reacted recently at all. Yeah. Well, so, uh, did you stomp your feet and throw a fit and tell these people they were unfit? No. Of course not. Of course not. Did you feel like stomping your feet and throwing a fit and telling these people they were unfit? Yes. Yes. Okay, both things are true. that you encountered something that is antithetical to your own held beliefs of how one should be in the world. And you did not create further discord in the world by sharing that distaste with those people. Now, I could argue that there are things that might be done that are appropriate. So... What you chose to do was to tell them, to point out to them what you were experiencing, which is, you know, you're bad-mouthing these people. They can take that hint or not take that hint. 
what that does for you is release some of the need to... It, it establishes that you are present with your beliefs. You're not, you're not rejecting them just because there are other people who don't agree with you. Okay? So we can, we can still have our opinions and our views. It's just how tightly are we clinging to them that causes suffering, our suffering and someone else's suffering. So what's giving rise to suffering? You experience pain by what they were, the way they were behaving, as I experienced pain by the way this person this morning was behaving. But I wasn't going to change her behavior by anything I said. So all I could do is reject her. Now, I might choose not to spend much time in her presence. But in that moment, what was, what was the kindest, wisest thing I could do? Allow her to be who she is and let go of my need for it to be different. So there's where the suffering for us is, is in the need for it to be different than it is, not in the fact of it. Does that make sense? So, sometimes... It's, it's not necessary to be complacent. You don't have to give up what you th- what your values. You don't have to give up your values to be free. You just have to not be controlled by your values. They can't be more important than anything. Does that make sense? Does that help? Okay. Nobody said this was easy. That's why it's important to notice those moments when... Just those moments when it feels free. When, when you see it really clearly. I really don't like this. And I'm going to stay here with it. That. That. It's not happening to you. And you're not doing something. You're being something. You're just there in that null space between being for or against. You're just there for that. And then there's the next moment. And sometimes the next moment requires you to do something. Thank you. Anybody else? Wait, wait, we need to use the microphone. No, yes, because it's being recorded. Thank you. She's not my mother tongue, so I hope I, uh, I say it right. Um, you said about... Le- All right. Um, you said uh, of letting go of the me, the main. Could we say it also in the psychological sense and uh, letting go of, of any ego and be more in the self? Um, my statement was not intended to be uh, a comment on the psychological health. I think last night you talked about the difference between self-esteem and self-confidence. Okay, so ego is necessary to participate in the world. Not a self would be sufficient. Non-self, 
Mm-hmm. Now that depends on what you mean by non-self. In the, in the so, Jungian way, in the, the self itself. In the Jungian way, the self would be sufficient. The self. Well, you know, I can't really adjust, I can't really mm-hmm. address the Jungian sense of mm-hmm. self that you're describing. When we talk about non-self here, what we mean is that there is no constant, unchanging self. Everything is constantly changing. Everything is impermanent. And all of the things that we attribute to self are constantly changing. So the idea of a non-changing self is something that is not real. It has nothing really to do with ego in the, in the psychological sense of ego. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're here. Each of us is an individual in this room. But it's also true that I'm not the same person I was even five minutes ago. And I'm certainly not the person I was 20 years ago. And anything that I say about myself, I can usually say the opposite of, about myself in, under different conditions and circumstances. In that sense, I am, it is a non-self, a non-unchanging uh, thing. That's the sense in which we mean non-self. Mm-hmm. So it is, it's different than the Atman concept, Indian yeah. concept. It is different for us, yes. Mm-hmm. It's a different meaning. It doesn't mean that a, a, a you know this is this is there's there's a woman sitting here in a body. She has a personality. She has certain characteristics. She has a, a history. She has what's gone on in her life, but she is not an unchanging thing. She is not an absolute. Mm-hmm. So we've run out of time. So I think we have to kind of drop this, but uh, the sense in which I meant uh, not me is that my views and my opinions about myself and about you can get in the way of my showing up for you. The letting go of my story about me leaves space to discover what's happening in this moment. That's the sense in which I was using it. Meaning that you shouldn't blow up your ego in any way, of course. That's, um, that's true. Uh, but I hesitate to, get, mm, to make any statements of a psychological nature that can be misinterpreted. So, so it's, kind of, it's kind of late in the evening for me to do this one. Do you, would you like to make a comment? I just, I just think of it real simply as there's a me, right, that, that manifests in the world. It's kind of a slightly overweight middle-aged guy who's got a degree and does this job and so forth. And that thing exists. And I need to be aware of that and kind of play that role. And, you know, but, but not get too invested in it. You just said yes. that, um, that the most important thing not to cling to is me. And it's also the hardest thing not to cling to. That guy, that slightly overweight middle-aged guy with a job, exists, but he's not real in a real sense. What, whatever is real is what I'm trying to figure out when I meditate. Right. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but it's part of everything else, and I'm trying to figure that out. I don't know if that helped. Yeah. All of the, the, ways, that, the ways that you described yourself are all conceptual. 
Yeah. And concepts change. Yeah, it's, it's a story. That, yes, I it's a story. Right. Thank you all. Have a good evening.